Let me tell you who we conservatives are. We love people. When we look out over the United States of America, when we see a group of people such as this or anywhere, we see Americans. We see human beings. We don't see groups. We don't see victims. We don't think that person doesn't have what it takes. We believe that person can be the best he or she wants to be. I call my philosophy and approach compassionate conservatism. It is compassionate to actively help our fellow citizens in need. It is conservative to insist on responsibility and on results. I believe in Jesus, guns, and babies. And I believe in putting the Constitution first. Nikki Haley is not a conservative. Nikki Haley's a committed neoliberal, and it's measurable. Look at my record. I don't care what anybody says. I am a hardcore conservative. I always have been. I've been a fiscal conservative. You saw I ran a socially conservative state. At the UN, we cut a billion dollars off the budget, so they can say whatever they want. What I can tell you is that everything I've ever done I've fought for, everything I've ever done has been about results, and everything I've ever done is try to get people to see the best in themselves to go forward. I believe in the idea of amnesty for those who have put down roots and who have lived here, even though sometime back they may have entered illegally. I got a big truck. Just in case I need to round up criminal illegals and take them home myself. Yep, I just said that. I'm Brian Kemp. If you want a politically incorrect conservative, that's me. Being a conservative cannot simply be about how long you're willing to scream, how angry you're willing to be, or how many names you're willing to call people. I'm Liz Cheney. My family has called Wyoming home for four generations. It is not enough for Wyoming to just send a Republican to Washington. We need a proven conservative who will defend the Constitution. We need a fighter with a record of standing up against the liberal establishment. It's important that the conservative party nominate a conservative and someone who understands the role of America in the world. And, and Donald Trump has not taken the time or doesn't seem to have the interest to learn these things. He certainly hasn't historically been a conservative and the views he expresses right now don't appear to be conservative either. Donald Trump is the one who has made immigration the big issue that it really is. We have the best conservative platform we've ever had, and he endorses it. He will stand by it. He is a real conservative, and I ask you to support him. But I've always been a conservative person, and my bent has been conservative. And over the last number of years, when I started getting very political, I started seeing more and more that that is my, that is my leaning and that is my strong leaning. And I think people see that. Is Donald Trump a conservative? Is Ron DeSantis? Who gets to call themselves a real conservative and who doesn't? And how do you tell the difference? Is the Republican Party still a conservative political party? Because I'm not seeing a lot of Ronald Reagan out there. I'm not even sure I could really tell you what conservatism means today. I know what it used to mean. When I was a kid, I thought that being conservative meant that you loved freedom and America, you had the best outfits on the 4th of July, but you didn't like spending money and you didn't like girls that wore short skirts or showed too much skin. But then I got older. And I learned that it's actually more complicated than that. I learned about Ronald Reagan, a fierce defender of freedom and a warrior against communism. He was funny, probably the most patriotic man that I'd ever heard speak. And he didn't like the government, even though he ran to be its leader. I learned about President Bush, both of them, and the idea that conservatism meant an emphasis on national security, America's role as a superpower, 
supporting the military, and of course, no new taxes. I lived through the Tea Party Revolution, when being conservative meant that we weren't spending a dime on anything. So, what are we living through now? What does conservatism mean in this moment? MAGA Republicans and former President Trump have added trillions to the national debt. They support abandoning Ukraine and Taiwan. They want to ban books. They claim to hate government intervention, but at the same time demand the government intervenes to stop anything that they don't like. Is that really what the legacy of President Reagan and other conservative leaders has amounted to? Heath Mayo says no. Heath is the founder of a grassroots group called Principles First, a group that's arguing for a different kind of conservatism and giving home to many Americans that feel excluded from Trump's Republican Party. In today's episode, Heath and I are going to discuss what it means to be a conservative today, how leaders can grapple with the complexities of our current political moment, and how the movement lost its party. But the conversation doesn't stop there. We also talk about leadership, what it takes to be a leader, and the courage that it takes to persevere. I can't wait for you to hear it. So without any further ado, I'm Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. Let's get started. Heath Mayo, welcome to Moderate Party. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so I want to start our conversation off kind of broad and just try to get a shared understanding of what a conservative is. It's a label that gets thrown around a lot, but it's defined very rarely. So Russell Kirk, a godfather in the conservative movement, said that a conservative is a person who endeavors to conserve the best in our traditions and our institutions. He said that to conserve means to save. And William F. Buckley Jr., the much more flamboyant godfather of the conservative movement, said that a conservative is somebody that stands athwart history yelling stop at a time when nobody is inclined to do so. So my question for you, Mr. Heath Mayo, do you agree with that definition of conservatism or do you have one of your own? I think I much prefer Kirk's definition of how he phrased it there than Buckley. I mean, Buckley was a a great intellect and I think there's a, a lot of truth to what he's saying there as well. But the conservatism that I hold and that I that really resonates with me is this idea that it's it's easier to tear good things down than it is to build them up and it takes much longer to do so. And so when Kirk talks about conserving healthy institutions, things like the rule of law come to mind, constitution, sort of the norms and practices of checks and balances and all those good things that have developed over, you know, decades now and two two and a half centuries of American governance and leaders coming and going, those things are good. And, you know, some institutions are bad. Slavery, for instance, was an institution. That's not a good institution. Some institutions that you always want to question and you want to to get rid of if they're inconsistent with your values. But I think here in America, we do have good institutions. The Constitution is, by and large, one of the most successful governing documents the country has ever seen. And in my mind, that is what I hold to be conservatism. And particularly today, when we see those institutions uh, under attack from so many fronts. Um, so I much prefer Kirk's definition. You know, some people, it, I think conservatism, you know, it's hard to know exactly what conservatism means today because the term is thrown around so much as sort of a political label. But intellectually, you know, there was this other strain of conservatism that is much more sort of like the caricature of it is conservatives want to take us back to the 1950s. And there's like this ideal of American life that's like 
the mom stays at home and cooks and there's two <laughs> kids and the dad goes and works and like it's, you know, Stepford Wives. That is not my conception of conservatism. I, I think some people certainly hold it in, in the United States, um, but I don't want it to be the dominant strand of conservatism because I think there's a much more attractive and compelling version of it that could really be useful for the country. Hmm. I think that that's a really interesting point that you're zeroing in on, because I think that some of the people that call themselves conservative have really been blurring the line between nostalgia and conservation lately. It can feel like the movement and to some degree, the Republican Party as a whole has become infected by this toxic nostalgia. They're pushing to take us back to the past, right? Which is often a time that they were never actually alive to experience. So they want to return to something that they've never known. And that just makes me think that perhaps what they're really longing for is a time where they had more social power and social influence than they do today. Because some of those bad institutions like slavery or denying women the right to vote or, you know, to get a credit card, like those bad institutions did give social and economic power to one particular group of people. And sometimes it can feel like what they're actually trying to conserve or what they're trying to get back to is having that type of power. But it, obviously, it's not socially acceptable for them to say that out loud. So instead, they call it something different. And unfortunately, I think too often they call it being conservative. Do you think I have that right? That some people within the conservative movement have used history and tradition to disguise grievance? Or am I off base? I think that is really well put. Everything you just said is really observant and really well put to the problems that we're facing. I do think that this push toward nostalgia is sort of a narrative that can be told to folks who are increasingly feeling either economic dissatisfaction or angst with their current status. Maybe they've, they're, they're stagnating in the middle class or they've been unemployed. I mean, this is post-2008 financial crisis, I think we've entered into a new era in the country. The, the folks who are struggling, uh, the demographic mix has shifted. You know, there's this white working class uh, who in the Midwest, for instance, and, and then the Rust Belt that was really hammered after the financial crisis. And so the language and narratives that political parties tell can mass grievance. And, and you can tell this story of like, remember when life was this way and, and you were at the center, everything was so good for you. Shouldn't we bring that back? Uh, and so I do think that is kind of fueling some of these grievance narratives and it, and it makes people feel like they are the victim, that that was taken away from them by some other group of Americans or some other group of non-Americans. And that's just an easy story for talentless politicians to sell when they're not focused on sort of painting an optimistic and aspirational vision for what we should be doing as a country. How do you reconcile that within the movement that you're trying to build where you have a large group of people that would be more likely to ideologically align with conservatism that are focused on that grievance and are getting that amplified by the media they consume and the politicians they support? How do you reconcile that with your more optimistic and hopeful movement? I mean, I, it's a challenge, right? That is the essential challenge in politics. I think political leaders can either choose to prey on people's fears and, and angers at life, at their situation. I mean, we all face challenges in life. We get pissed off about things and we think things aren't fair. I mean, that's a human nature and that human nature is always there. And you can always have political leaders that bottle that angst up and channel it towards their own uh, advancement politically. 
So that's a challenge. I think the problem is, is you see in history, it ebbs and flows, right? There's times where we're animated a, a little bit by these populist angsty moments. And then there's other times where we're completely united as a country across class lines in common purpose. We have a goal, you know, it's defeating Soviet communism or stopping Hitler's march across uh, Europe. I mean, there were, there were times in history where everybody came to, you know, after, after 9-11 was hit, there was a great moment of national unity. Sometimes it takes an external force or a crisis to, to force us all together. And, and also, I think people just get exhausted with being mad all the time. So we just got to let them cry it out till they get tired. Yeah, just just. Yeah, exactly. It's people at some point just get so exhausted with figuring out how to be the victim every day that they want to be empowered and inspired to actually go achieve things because we do live in such a great country. I think if people can be guided by compelling leaders to say, look, this isn't about your victim status or punishing your enemies. This is about what we can go achieve together. I think that we can have success. Some people write off Trump voters as, you know, whatever, they're just not listening. You can't even get to them or whatever. I don't, I don't view the world that way. I think Americans by and large share the same values and want to make the country a better place. And so I, I don't write any voter off. And I think it's a mistake that some people want to do that. I, I don't think we should. I mean, I agree with you. I spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about how we can talk to, persuade, and understand people that think differently than we do. But if I was to play the role of devil's advocate, I would say that all of that unity and, you know, finding our common motivations, all of those things came about as a result of an external threat. You mentioned the threat of communism or Hitler 9-11. Historically, factions within the Republican Party completely broke apart when the USSR fell apart and the threat of communism went away. The unity that held all of those coalitions together disbanded as quickly as the threat. So, I mean, do you think that we can even reach that level of unity without some sort of shared enemy or external threat? I think it is it's certainly going to be challenging. And particularly now, we have forces in the Republican Party who don't even agree that illiberalism and, and totalitarian dictators are actually external threats. Tucker Carlson was in Moscow this week interviewing Vladimir Putin with these softball interview questions. I mean, he thinks the guy is, you know, he's got a valid argument to go in and invade Ukraine and, and kill all these people and start committing genocide on the Ukrainian people. I mean, it's bizarre. It's just, there, there's, there's certain strands of the Republican Party that are living in just complete alternate reality. So that makes it challenging for sure. And I think that's different than in previous years. I think there are, though, certain external threats. And I mean, I think just generally it feels like the tensions around the world are ratcheting up to a degree that people start to get uneasy and they don't necessarily want to screw around with electing some kind of crazy <laughs> off-the-cuff person who's just going to tell it like it is. I think people felt comfortable doing that in 2016. Um but increasingly, I think you're going to see Americans say, you know, we got all this stuff going on in China. We got Vladimir Putin, Hamas. Like, there's just a lot of really important challenges to deal with that we can't afford somebody in there who's, who's just focused on themselves and flying off the cuff all day. We can't afford that. It's almost like a privilege of grievance because we've been living in a period of such peace and prosperity. And we have, like these idle hands and we're just getting all worked up about these things that don't really matter because we have no reason not to. Our life is good. Like if Tucker Carlson is going to Moscow, it's because Moscow has never been a threat to his freedom. 
so he can throw a softball question because he's never needed a free press the way that the Ukrainian people need one now. He's never needed his president to be held to the account that we need Putin held to. Tucker Carlson can interview Putin because Putin has never been a threat to Tucker Carlson because of the United States. And it's weird because by doing things like that, by interviewing dictators like it's not a big deal, it can actually erode the stability and the peace and prosperity that gave you that freedom in the first place. That's right. And, and another issue is that there's just a degree of trust lost between the American people and their institutions. You know, that those arguments that he makes, that there's some kind of deep state or that judges are just sitting there in their robes trying to go get Republicans. That's just not true, uh, but it erodes confidence in those very institutions that we need to kind of keep us on the, the straight and narrow as a country. Um, and we've been at this now for a while. I think it's important for conservative leaders who want to change the direction of the party and, and even other leaders who are conservative that want to put the country in a better direction. I think we have to start to think more strategically about how we repair that trust beyond just saying, they're nuts. They're crazy. Like, don't listen to those people. Um, we really got to try to figure out where we can meet them and start to repair that trust and explain either more transparency or just literally going into the lion's den sometimes and, and having conversations that you think are going to be hostile. So I, I really respect sort of Chris Christie and some of these other folks who have ran for president. You saw them go into rooms where they just completely got booed off stages. That needs to happen more often. It needs to not shock people uh, when people disagree, because I think that's how you get this tribalism of people only speaking to their crowds. If you are not a skilled politician or you don't really understand what it is that you're fighting for, you're going to be uncomfortable going into places where you're going to be challenged on what you believe and have to explain it with facts and arguments that resonate with people who don't already agree with you. It's true of anything you do in life. If you go and try to make an argument in a courtroom for a client, you really got to be prepared to, to, to fend off counter arguments. You got to really understand the other side and understand what they're going to argue and where their perspectives are coming from. That traditionally was always an important component of American politics. Today with the different media silos, you go get Newsmax and Tucker Carlson, even now Fox News is this different silo than Newsmax and all this other stuff. People have a lot of feedback loops that confirm their um, preconceived notions and never pressure test or introduce facts that are different. And so it's important that we have leaders who feel comfortable and competent enough to walk into rooms that are hostile to them, because that's the only way we're going to repair that lack of trust, because as long as you're in different rooms, everybody is going to convince themselves that the other room is the bad room. That's right. A bad room and an enemy of your room and that you're a victim of the other room. And that's the problem, right? Everybody is a victim of everybody instead of trying to get together and explain our perspectives and what the right answer is. Which is leadership, right? I mean, like having to go into a room that isn't full of fans, that's what it means to lead. Correct. And yet I agree with you. And I think our, our conception of leadership right now in Washington is very different. People think, oh, leadership is just being the person on the stage in front of a big crowd that's clapping for them. You know, if, if I can just, you know, if I say the right things and Donald Trump will let me onto the stage with him, I'm leading those people as well. I'm, I'm being a good leader. No, 
that is the complete opposite of leadership. It's like Elise Stefanik the other day. I mean, she said, you know, and, and J.D. Vance, these, these folks who all want to be vice president or they want Donald Trump to pick them to be vice president, they're saying that, oh, I, I wouldn't have done what Mike Pence did. I, I would not have certified the, the, the election. I mean, this is not what these people believe. That's not leadership. They're just telling everyone, you know, Donald Trump or his supporters, they're just telling everyone what they think those people want to hear. That's not, that's not leadership. That's just sort of crowd service. Um, and, and, and so we really need better from the folks that are in Washington or who want to be in Washington. We need folks who can actually say, yeah, it's not, not a good idea. And here's why. Right. The difference between like a leading man and a leader. You're not an actor. You're not just saying your lines. Yes, exactly. That's a great that's a great uh, metaphor. You've talked about conservatism as being fundamentally rooted in preserving everything that is good. Do you think that conservatism can be rooted there and also be an adaptable ideology? Like, can it modernize? Should it modernize? I think so. I, I mean, and you've seen conservatism has different flavors and certainly it's the principles of conservatism should guide the solution. I, I, I view the principles different than the policy. The principles that free markets are generally good and that free people making their own decisions, you know, emergent market order is better than trying to dictate or anticipate what those outcomes should be. Those principles are different than the policies. And I think those po that policies um, can and should incorporate the realities on the ground. Um, it, we should adapt to the new challenges that we face. I mean, in 1980, we didn't have AI. Uh, we didn't have social media. We didn't have Apple Pay, lightning fast financial transactions. We didn't have SPACs. You know, there's, you know, the world moves on and the, the challenges evolve. And I think our thinking about them should also evolve. But the principles that we use to address those challenges stay pretty consistent over time and can. They can inform new answers to new questions. The problem is that we've kind of gotten away from guiding principles about how we should address things. And so nobody has any idea about how to address things because we have no grounding in principle. Right. If you don't have a firm foundation, everything is just slippery slopes. Right. Exactly. So do you think that conservatism failed to conserve itself? Yes. I mean, that's the short answer. I think, I think the, the institutions of conservatism, the conservative movement have been utterly corrupted. The leaders of the conservative movement have not preserved and conserved the institutions that sustain the movement. Things like CPAC every year, get, people would gather, uh, different strands, libertarians, conservatives, um, you know, even the, even the fringes of the party would show up and, you know, people dressed up as George mm -hmm. Washington. I mean, I actually used to love seeing those people at CPAC. I used to go to CPAC all the time when I was in, in college before it kind of got nuts. Um, but it was a great place where the move, different, different strands of the movement would come together and we would debate things in a healthy way. Um, there would be policy discussions. People would talk about the principles that were supposed to guide us and the, the benefits and the drawbacks of those things. CPAC is not that anymore. CPAC's, you know, there's golden statues of Trump were rolling around in the hallways. Like it's not an ideas gathering at all. So embarrassing. Yeah, so embarrassing. That's an example. Uh, you see, Congress is an example. People, there's no discussion of ideas. It's a person that they can't even agree on a speaker. It's just a daily sort of food fight in a high school cafeteria. So that the degrading of the institutions of the conservative movement sort of across the board from CPAC to think tanks like Heritage 
also has just completely debased itself in service of sort of the political personality cults of the party these days. Like in the RNC, you're seeing this Ronna McDaniel, you know, Trump, Trump calls for her ouster and the next day she's just going to resign. I mean, it's, it's sort of crazy. So definitely answer to your question, the conservative movement has utterly failed to conserve itself. How do you think that the Republican Party and I guess the conservative movement in general goes from being the party of ideas to the party without a platform? Like that seems to be the refrain of what you're talking about is that CPAC used to be this place of ideas and now it's not. And Congress feels more like a graveyard of ideas, if we're being honest. So how does that evolution happen? I mean, I think part of it is, again, goes back to this leadership question. You need leaders like Lankford has tried to do on immigration, but he needs more support there of explaining to people like, okay, this is what you want. You're upset that we don't have a secure border. You know, you're upset that we have never had an answer to this question. I've got one. I've got one that we can pass. And here's why. And he, and he's been trying to explain this to people and the nature of our pop people don't want to sit and listen. It's boring or it's hard to focus. And so we got to find better ways to convince people that, Hey, we need to actually do something about these problems that they're never going to be fixed. I think politicians just want the border to stay open so that they can keep campaigning on, on, you know, this border issue every year and never do anything about it. Um, it, it seems like that's what it is, um, because they never try to actually answer the question and get to work on it. So I, I think that's a problem is just figuring out a way to communicate uh, and persuade voters that, Hey, you know, we're not going to get everything that we need out of the gate. You know, we're not, we, we may not like portions of bills that we pass, but we, we live in a democracy. We live in a system of checks and balances in a Republic and like, Yes, East Texas voters are in the same country as like Hollywood liberals, <laughs> and yes. we're not gonna we're not gonna impose a hundred percent of our will on all of the other people, and we need to learn to 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 live in a balance here. And I, people have sort of just completely forgotten about that. It seems other people are here too. Like no matter what party you're with, I'm like okay, but you know that if you had a hundred percent of the people, we wouldn't even have elections. But you barely right. have fifty. Right. So exactly. are you just going to force it down the throat of the other 50 or? There's a lot of zero sum thinking and zero sum rhetoric out there that's hard to people get wired this way. They think, oh, God, if Joe Biden gets elected or a Democrat gets elected. They're going to come take my guns and, you know, all of these things. And, and I look, I'm from I, my my stepdad is that guy. <laughs> so I get it. I mean, I get that fear, uh, particularly in communities like where I'm from. But it's because they're constantly told that every day, right? Mm -hmm. They're told that like this is election is existential, and like if he gets elected, then your, your guns are going to be taken away, your property is going to be conscripted by the government, and like it's it's just kind of nuts. And and but if you're told that every day, I can get why like you're pissed off, and you're like this is this we can't let this stand. But it just it ratchets up our political fever to a degree that's just not healthy, where we can't nobody can just focus and 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 do constructive things anymore because we're so pissed off at each other for for made up reasons. I mean, and those made up reasons don't feel so made up anymore when the algorithm is feeding you every gun rate in the country like it happened in your town. It's easy to get pissed off and afraid about that. Or somebody comes on the news and just screams at you about how your rights are being taken away. If you listen to that every night, you're going to believe them. And then like all of a sudden you're like, can you believe that the government took this man's gun in Maine? 
But it's also like um, I live in Texas and it's not my business. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there just needs to be a little bit. And I think for leaders, it means that we need more perspective in our rhetoric and also more humility. Like people need to understand from leaders that like, look, things aren't going to always be sunshine and roses. Like we could pass my, you know, reform bill and like, we're still going to have issues. I'm not saying that this is a hundred percent solved for every problem that we face. We're going to have to keep working at this. This is not a one time, but we're going to do this. We're going to fix some problems and, you know, hopefully we're going to fix more problems than we create and then get on down the road three, four years and we'll, we'll fix more problems and we'll solve mm-hmm. more problems and, and there'll be new problems that we face that we don't even know we face today. And so I think as a country, we need to look at ourselves in sort of a, a more long-term project as opposed to like, God, if we elect Joe Biden again, we're just never going to secure the border or, you know, like our, you know, country's it's over. done. Country's yeah. done. Um, and I, I, so that, that I think would be useful, but it's hard to do that because the, you know, the challenges that we face are really, really critical. I mean, in, increasing, increasingly serious challenges that we're facing, uh, and threats that, you know, that the, the nature of the threat is, is much more short-term and acute rather than sort of long-term and gradual. So it's a, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Oh, that is such a good point. It feels like we're really struggling to think past the short term in anything. Like every election feels so urgent and so critical because we're not thinking of the next election. Like I'm very concerned about Trump being reelected, like very, very concerned. I think he could do a lot of damage to the country, but by 2028, he can't run again. Like he's done barring the collapse of U.S. democracy or constitutional order. But the effect of his presidency could be long lasting. So I think that people are getting so worked up about 2024, but they're not thinking about 2028. And I think that the point you're raising is a good one. Like, do you think that we've lost the ability as a society to think beyond our short term goals? Yeah, I mean, I it's, it's an interesting point. And it's actually I think it's an important source of actually American weakness if we don't solve this. Because you see leaders like Putin and and particularly Xi in China, who gets to rule the country completely in a totalitarian way for like decades at a time. They think in centuries in China <laughs> and like when they come up with strategic plans, it's like a, a 50 or a 70 year. Like I think their current strategic plan for the country is like through 2050 mm-hmm. um, and their leaders aren't changing. There's no elections. I mean. There's, there's a whole host of problems with that, but one strategic advantage that they have is that they can have some consistency in, in implementation, at least to the degree that they can control their populace with an iron fist. I think they view that as a source of strength versus the United States, which seems to be comp- always in convulsion every four years. You know, we, we pass executive orders and then we repeal them. And that's a problem that Congress has stopped legislating entirely. They've delegated all of that law lawmaking authority to the executive, which again, flips on diametrical polls every four years. And so you get, that's why you see president gets in, passes all these executive orders to, to do pet policy project. Next president comes in and just promises to repeal them all. And they repeal them and do their own executive orders. And so the pendulum of the governing direction of the country just completely switches and you can't 
execute against a long-term plan. So we got to really figure that one out. And the Congress needs to start legislating again on the longer term timeframe so that we can start to address some of those long-term challenges. But to your point, I mean, on the flip side, it is healthy, I think, that Americans think the elections are important and engage as they do uh, every four years. So it focuses the country's attention every four years. And we have a healthy discussion, at least about what we want to do for the next four years. So so that engagement is good because I do think the threat, like you say, is is pretty existential in, in 2024. Um, but when we do that, we, we got to somehow be holding our leaders accountable to these longer term, to, to progress on these longer term goals. Things like, uh, you know, managing the, the national debt, which completely, I mean, it's like nobody even cares about the number. It keeps like doubling every couple we're gonna years. We're going to live like, forever. We're going to live forever. No one's going to have to ever pay this off. And, and it's just sort of a bizarre way of thinking. It's a source of strategic weakness for us if we don't address it. But there's no incentive in the short term for a politician to cut a government program or reform it in some way or extract government waste. That's boring stuff. Nobody cares about that in their minds, but it really matters for the country. Things like addressing the fallouts of changing climate, things like this. Those are longer term priorities that if you don't have some consistency in the way we address them, it's going to be either we're not going to address them at all, or someone's going to come along and try to address it all at once with some huge omnibus package. And that's not going to work either. And that's going to create its own problem. So I, I, I think you're right to focus in on this lo- sort of long-term, short-term issue. Um, and, I, and I hope voters and listeners out there start to think about this. And if you go to a town hall with one of your elected officials, ask them a question like this and see what they respond. Uh, so, you know, see if they can even appreciate what you're talking about, because I would bet like 80% members of Congress, 70% wouldn't, I mean, it would be hard to even grasp the issue that we're talking about. Especially in the house. Cause they don't even know if they're going to be here in two years. Yeah, and two, I mean, they, they get there and they start calling around, raising money for the next election. So I, I, I agree that the House is really the, the source of this. Okay, so let's talk about our short-term problem. The Republican primary is underway. And Donald Trump is the giant golden elephant in the room. Um, I'm pulling for Nikki Haley like as hard as I can. I'm rooting for her. But at this point, barring um, a massive change in circumstance, it looks like Trump is going to be the nominee again. Do you think that his nomination was inevitable? I uh, mean, I think so. I think it's just so baked into the how Republican voters currently think about themselves that he has completely dominated the party for, uh, you know, the better part of a decade now. And he's because he's kind of gotten rid of principles and, and, and he completely abandoned them and he sort of taken over control and the way of thinking of all of the underlings of the Republican Party, the you know, members of Congress, he, he, he's created this sense of uh, connection and identity where people, they don't really care about the policies. The voters really see themselves as these sort of emotionally connected to Donald Trump. And when mm-hmm. someone attacks Donald Trump, they're attacking, you know, this person as a, as a voter and as a citizen. Um, and that's a really hard bond to break. So I always thought it was going to be difficult for someone to to supplant Trump as the nominee. So I think Nikki Haley has actually done a tremendous job <laughs> getting to where she has. I mean, getting 30, 40 percent of the vote in New Hampshire 
making this argument. And it just shows the power of making this argument to voters in a sort of a direct way. You saw Chris Christie do this, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence to some degree. But, but the more people make these arguments in, in the rooms that are hostile, that's the only way to change the numbers. And I think you have seen that if there's a growing faction in the Republican Party, the growing faction is actually probably the faction that is uh, dissatisfied with Trumpism now. It's still not a controlling faction of the party, um, but it's certainly got a toehold. And, and I can guarantee you in November, when he's, when it, once he becomes the nominee, I think Trump and his team are going to be worried about where those voters are going to actually land because they know that those folks are guided by principles and ideas and what's actually in the interest of the country, as opposed to just kind of putting on the red hat and, and turning their brains off and, and kind of voting because of this emotional connection to, to Donald Trump. So if I'm understanding you right, you're saying that there is an anti-Trump coalition of the party that's a minority, but come election day, that minority could make the difference? I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that, that slice of the Republican Party and independence, right? I mean, that, there, I, I, I see this coalition as sort of a principles first coalition of voters that are non-affiliated independents, also Republicans like those in New Hampshire who voted for Nikki Haley and are now saying when they're asked, you know, if Trump's the nominee, will you support him? People are actually saying no, like card-carrying Republicans are saying they're going to split with their party to keep Trump out of the White House. I think that coalition could really be decisive. Suburban women, uh, professionals. Um, uh, He's talking to you listeners. Yeah, young, young people around the country. I mean, it's, it's really not demographic based, but I mean, I think that's what people think of when they think of this, this voting block. I, I think that if the next, pre, you know, whoever the next president is, is going to have to win. So I, I think even though we're not winning primaries, these folks should feel very empowered because they kind of hold the keys to the kingdom um, and they should kind of exercise that role um, accordingly. Well, they did that group. Um... I guess on the center left did make the difference for Biden. It's like your moderates, your independents in swing states, like that was the difference. And it, it wasn't a big difference, but it was enough. Right. And without ranked choice voting and with the primaries the way they are, I mean, until we get some of those electoral reforms passed and, and you know, the w way that they gerrymander districts is just crazy. I don't know. We're going to have to get some kind of commissions and, and independent commissions or figure out something to deal with that. But until we have those systemic reforms, you know, I don't know if we'll ever win a Republican primary. We probably, we might could win in some places, but we really got to focus on our role in the general election. And the only way that we exercise that power and, and flex that muscle is to be willing to walk away, you know, bolt from our party and vote in, a, in an independent way um, so that, you know, the powers in the party take us seriously and realize that, hey, we can't get, we can't bank on these voters just because they have an R next to their name. Uh, we got to actually do what we got to actually do what we said we were going to do. We got to actually cater to the principles that they care about and not just stand up and say our name is Donald Trump and, you know, say some nasty things about immigrants. <laughs> when I attended the Principles First Summit, in your opening remarks, you said that a principled first leader has to have the courage to lose. And that really stuck with me. Ever, I mean, like ever since you said it. And it came up again when I finished reading Mitt Romney's book after processing my grief about him not running for re-election. But I was thinking about how 
we do have principled leaders that have the courage to lose, but the problem is that they do lose. And then they leave office or they're voted out and they're replaced by less principled people. How do you reconcile needing to have the courage to lose with the consequences of losing? No, it's a great question. I mean, I, having the courage to lose is, is an ingredient to ultimately winning. Now, how do you win? You win by having first the courage to lose and getting out there and saying what you want to say and not what the crowd is saying or what the people you think the people want to hear, telling them what they need to hear. And then having the ability and the leadership style and all of these different things, the empathy to meet these people where they are and bring them to you. I mean, you can't be satisfied of just getting on your soapbox and yeah, I'm going to lose. And I'm just going to yeah. tell all you people why you're wrong and why we're going to hell in a handbasket and I'm principled and you're not. That's not a good strategy either. I mean, sure, I guess you have the courage to lose, but you also have need to have the courage to persuade and the courage to actually fight and, and try to get it done. So I, I think it's part and parcel to having a good strategy and being an empathetic leader, but it's sort of a table stakes. If you don't have that courage to lose, then you're not going to be saying what you believe. You're just going to be saying what th the room already thinks. And that's not leadership at all. I mean, I hear you say that and like, I would vote for you. I love that. But that leadership's not being rewarded by voters. I think about this a lot with moderates is if you just see moderates getting harassed and ch getting chased out of Congress or losing their primary, and going down in these blazes of glory, it discourages other moderates from jumping in or other principled first leaders like you're talking about. It's tough. I mean, when you lose, people say they're a loser and that's tough to combat. We, this faction does need to start putting up wins uh, soon. And I would argue that 2020 was a win for this faction. We mm -hmm. didn't win a primary. We weren't on the ballot, but we stopped Donald Trump. And that was sort of an organizing goal. And it had the effect of injuring his stature in the party to some degree. And now you see he's still got a controlling faction in the party. But if he loses again in 2024, I think you're already seeing that his standing is frayed to a large degree. I don't think people expected Nikki Haley to stick around this long or have this big of a percentage. So it's just a process. It takes a while. This is not a fight that's going to be over tomorrow. This is a generational struggle to, to reinsert principles into our politics. So people need to get comfortable with like losing the battle and, and winning one the next day. Long-term thinking. Yeah. So let's switch gears and talk about Principles First, which is a grassroots organization that you founded. And I mean, you've put yourself out there on Twitter. You're very vocal. You're very anti-Trump and anti-MAGA. And I would imagine that the comments that you've received, the feedback that you've gotten is not always, to say, kind and generous. And it takes a lot to put yourself out there. I know that I get all kinds of messages and emails that I could go without, and I feel like you've put yourself out there in a much more visible way. And I'm curious, can you tell me about the moment where you decided to like get off the couch and get into the fight, even though putting yourself in these situations can make you a target for a lot of groups that would like to shut you up. Like, what was the final straw for you? I mean, I, I just think I looked around in 2016, I supported Marco Rubio. I was out there, you know, knocking doors in the frigid New Hampshire streets, <laughs> trying, trying to get him nominated. I went to South Carolina. I even went down to Florida. I think he dropped out after that. 
And, but I really, I, he was a, he was a leader. He was young, uh, charismatic, and he was talking about all the things that I agreed with. Uh, he was somebody I really, you know, ad admired at that time in my life, 2016, I was in law school. I was still thinking about what I wanted to do in my life. And I, I just saw him and I was like this, I, I feel like this guy is really a good leader and he has the potential to be a good leader for the country. What do they say about first impressions? <laughs> like this. Ever since then, I've been completely disabused of that <laughs> impression of him. And, and in my impression, similarly of a lot of other people, I think Mitt Romney, I'd supported him. He's, he's kind of and stayed true to, to what I had imagined him to be. But I think it was this frustration and sense of betrayal from people who had said all of these things that they believe for upwards of a generation. And then overnight after Trump became the nominee of the party, uh, and the president, they just completely changed who they were and what they believed. And I was just like, are we going to just stand around and just pretend that that didn't happen and pretend that like everybody's were just completely different and that was okay. I mean, that just something just very internal to me was just so irked and pissed off about that. And I was like, no, I mean, we're going to, I want to get people together who still believe in this stuff and start to, to make this point. Because another thing I got frustrated by was you never see these types of voters. I mean, they're out there, we're out there, uh, we're, we're out there, but you don't see us at a Trump rally and, you know, Trump and Charlie Kirk and even Matt Schlapp, they, they like to make all this hay about like, oh, it was packed. There were so many people and we went to the middle of a cornfield and look how many people there were. But I mean, there's also people in our lane of politics, a lot of people. I mean, mm -hmm. we, if we worked at it, we could also fill up a cornfield somewhere. <laughs> but yeah. you know, people are busy. We're, We're at just, work. <laughs> yeah. Just felt like there was this, there was this problem with like sane center right leadership where the only time you ever saw it was like on CNN or a newsroom. And, and, and look, it's, it's great to talk and go on those news shows, but I actually, I, I sympathize with sort of the criticisms that the Charlie Kirks of the world and the MAGA people will just say, oh yeah, you know, like, look, there they are on CNN, you know, they're going to leave Congress and go become the CNN contribute contributor, yeah. go to MSNBC. And I mean, like there is some, unfortunately, that is what happens. It's like the only place that we're really making our arguments are in these, these, these green rooms, um, which look, there's a place for that. I'm not attacking the media. There's a place for that. That's good to get your message out. But at the end of the day, if you're not like in the streets um, or, or in, in the diners with people and in their homes and, and you're not getting together to talk about things in real life, like you got to demonstrate that there's political support or nobody's ever going to believe you, right? If you just say like, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that believe in the Constitution. Trust me. Yeah, there, yeah, just trust me. There's never a room full of people clapping for when you say that. It's hard for people around the country to think that maybe, you know, if I, if I cheer for the constitution, you know, people will cheer for me. And unfortunately in politics, that's the way politicians' minds operate. Uh, mm -hmm. and so that's why you've seen last five, 10 years, the only place for Republican politicians to go and have an audience is Mar-a-Lago or Turning Point USA. And they got to say crazy crap to mm -hmm. on that stage to begin with. So we got to, that, that was the impetus was to create a new space, a new rally point for all of these types of voters who believe in principles to get together as a show of strength and support for the types of political leaders who are willing to take stands for these things, like the Mitt Romneys and the Liz Cheneys and, you know, the Jared Polises and the, and the, you know, 
Josh Shapiro's in, in Fetterman, you know, he's taken some stands and, and we've celebrated his stance on, you know, Hamas, Israel, immigration. Even he said some things like those people need to have support and they need to know that. Yeah. Friends. Yeah. There, there's a wellspring of popular voter support for that stuff. And the, and the thing is, I, this is my thesis, at least, and we'll see if this is the case. I think when you do that, when you put people in rooms and you create community that way, that's actually the juice that gets others to become more involved. People who are on the outside looking in, they're not sure. They don't want to step into a place where like they're the only person there and it's like the, the therapy squad. They want to, <laughs> where, where there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of optimism and ideas. And once you create that, it's like, if you build it, they will come from Field of Dreams. I think it's a little bit like that. I think mm -hmm. our space really needs to start building institutions and building places for people to gather. And we're going to see people start to come to our cornfield. But until we do that, we don't even have a cornfield for people to go to, or we don't even have a, a room. And so that was the genesis of Principles First. That's kind of the thesis and the thinking. And we've, I've been really encouraged on this front because, you know, this is the fourth one this year. We'll be at the Conrad in Washington, D.C. Um, on the same weekend as CPAC, February 24th and 25th. And we've already, it's already like nearly twice the size of the previous gatherings that we've had in the past. We continue to grow each year, but this one, this year, it's like really a step change. Um, so super excited. Everybody's really pumped to get together. The speaker lineup that we have is just really broad. It's diverse sort of intellectually and then politically. I think it's really right in our sweet spot of sort of center-right, frustrated Republicans and independents. And that to me, that's the stuff of political movement building. And it feels like a start rather than an end, which is the encouraging thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the work that you're doing is so important because if all you see on TV is these big Trump rallies or people going nuts over AOC and Bernie Sanders, it can feel really lonely if you don't feel that way or you don't support them. And I think especially, especially on the right where we need people to stand up for these principles, if they feel like they're constantly standing alone, I mean, it's really hard to do. It's hard to go against your entire social circle, especially if you don't have a social circle to support you. And I think that events like yours are just so critical because they show those people that you're not alone. You're not the freak. Like, there are a bunch of people that have similar values to you. And let's get them all together and, you know, talk out some of these big problems. Yeah, we, I mean, we enjoyed our people... We have volunteer committees. It's still a largely volunteer run. We had our first staff member this year, but for the most part, it's like volunteer agenda committees. I'm volunteer. It's everybody kind of pitching in their own time and energy to, to make this thing happen. So that I think is, is a lot of the secret sauce is that we have great volunteers that, that put it together. It's just a great time. It's like one of the most rewarding things that I've done in my career and life generally is to build this thing and help put it together because um, I met just such a ton of great people through it. Recently, I had a friend and a mentor of mine, his name is Dane White, tell me that good leaders are both thermometers and thermostats. They can take the temperature of a room, but they also have the power to change the temperature. And I think that you're really doing that with your movement. Like you are changing the temperature. And I think that a lot of people listening to this that are ideologically aligned with you or maybe not, they want to know how to do the same. So what advice would you have for people that are listening on how to change the temperature in any situation that they're in and how to lead like that? 
Well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Second off, it's very tough. And I, I appreciate that you say that I'm, I'm changing the temperature, but I, I don't know that I necessarily have a formula for how to do it. I think is very important in this day and age is to show up, show up at events, be known. Don't just, don't just, I mean, certainly tweeting helps and engaging on social media is good and posting and spreading the word. But, you know, we've already talked about a lot of the problem there is that you're in your bubble and you're speaking to people who only agree with you. So that's not really thermostat temperature changing. So showing up and going to new places and, and having sometimes tough conversations, that's when you really feel like, oh, I'm doing something different here. Like I'm persuading, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm making an argument. People should always check themselves to see like, if those are the types of things you're doing, it's probably, it's probably more likely than not that you're changing the temperature as opposed to just telling everyone what the temperature is. You need to be talking to people who disagree. It's seeking them out even trying to bring them into the fold. I think creating community is really important because you're seeing this today increasingly. The issues themselves, yes, there are many that are very important and they're passionately held, but it's a lot of times it's about this personal trust with either the political leader or the other people in the movement, identifying with them, you know, having some sense of commonality so that you can feel like, hey, I don't agree with this person all the time. But generally speaking, I feel comfortable identifying as a member of this movement. Why? Because I trust the leaders. I trust the people in it. They look at the world in a similar way. And I trust that they have the interests of the country at heart. I think establishing that bond is critical. So showing up, being engaged, and trying to create connections with people, I think those are the, those are the best three ways to actually start to try to change temperatures out there in the political, political landscape but I don't, I don't have the answer. If I did, I would, I would publish it and we would send it around and we would have changed the world. <laughs> well, I think you're doing a pretty good job so far. So how yeah. do we follow principles first? Like how do people get involved after they listen to this? They're obviously compelled by your message. They want to do more. What do they do? First thing would be to join us at the Principles First Summit uh, in February, if you can. I know it's tough to get to D.C. Not everybody's around D.C., but if you are, we have a welcome reception on Friday, February 23rd at Hill Country Barbecue. Uh, but then the main programming will pl take place at the Conrad Hotel here in Washington, D.C. on the 24th and 25th of February. You can register for that at our website, principlesfirst.us. Um, our principles are on there. Give those a read. See what you think. Declaration of Principles is kind of the core intellectual centerpiece of what we are. Um, and then you can see the speakers and the agenda is there as well. So that's the first thing. Second thing is just follow us on Twitter. We're at principles underscore one ST. So principles first on, on X. You can find us pretty easily just to see what we're talking about, see how we're approaching things and, and how we're talking about these issues and, and the importance of principles, because I think it's, it's oftentimes hard to know how you're supposed to talk about things um, in politics. And so it can be helpful to see how others are doing it and what's being successful and what isn't. So that's another thing that I would say do. Um, but then I think we're going to have dinners throughout the course of the year around the country. So that's, um, that's another option if you're not able to make it to D.C. And we'll start to talk about some of those options later on after the summit. All right. Well, I think that that's a great place to cut it. So Heath Mayo... Thank you so much for being a guest on Moderate Party. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for thinking of me and, and taking the time. It was a great, great discussion. Really, really thoughtful discussion. Thank you.
All right, guys, that concludes this insightful conversation that we had with Heath Mayo. I hope that you found his vision for conservatism and the work that he's doing to create more space on the center right as fascinating and inspiring as I did. I encourage all of you guys to keep up with Heath and the great work that they're doing at Principles First. In the show notes, you can find links to their organization and the summit. If you can't make it this year, plan to attend next year. And if you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating, review, or to follow this podcast wherever you're listening to podcasts. It helps us reach more listeners, and I do read the reviews. If you want to give me more specific feedback, or if you have ideas for an upcoming episode, or just want to talk about whatever you've read in the news, my inbox is always open. Feel free to email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care, and I'll talk to you again soon. Stay safe. Bye.